Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute for this lunchtime policy forum. My name is Ryan Bourne, and I occupy the R. Evan Scharf Chair in the Public Understanding of Economics here at Cato. As you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not originally from around these parts. Um, as with our speaker today, the Right Honourable Liz Truss MP, I'm from the other side of the pond. Uh, and with that in mind, it's exciting for me to announce that Cato is doing its bit for Anglo-American relations. Today, in conjunction with Daniel Hannan's Initiative for Free Trade and a range of other think tanks, including Heritage, CEI, AEI, the Institute of Economic Affairs and others, <clears throat> we've published the ideal US-UK free trade agreement, a free trader's perspective, which you can find on the Cato website. Uh, the publication makes the case for what an, an FTA between our countries should and shouldn't include, even going as far as helpfully laying out the legal text necessary uh, for such a deal between governments. But that's not what this event is, is about today. Uh, it gives me even greater pleasure to welcome and introduce the UK Cabinet Minister Liz Truss, who is uh, the Chief Secretary to the Treasury in the UK Government and the Member of Parliament for South West Norfolk. At a time when economic liberalism in the classical sense appears to be on the back foot in many policy areas on both sides of the Atlantic, and it has to be said even among groups and parties who we traditionally think of as its champions, Liz has been a refreshingly unflinching defender of liberty and of limited government since entering Parliament in 2010. She has challenged strongly the assumption that young people are all socialists, and as others have wilted with the ebbs and flows of public opinion or hopped aboard the passing bandwagon, apologies for the metaphors there, she has consistently made the case for fiscal responsibility and a pro-growth supply side agenda. Uh, Liz has done far more than just talk a good game though. She founded the Free Enterprise Group, which was an association of free market oriented conservative members of parliament. Uh, she formed that in 2011, and that became a powerful force for economic liberty and maintaining a firm grip on public expenditure from the Conservative backbenches at a time when the forces for abandoning so-called austerity were loudest. Fortunately for the, for the UK's free marketeers, the group soon became a victim of its own success, with many of its most prominent members, most notably Liz, subsequently offered government positions. In government, Liz has taken her appetite for reform into several important ministerial roles, including uh, Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Education and Childcare, then Secretary of State for the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, uh, and Secretary of State for Justice and Lord Chancellor. But it's obvious to those of us who know Liz that her true passion is with economics, and in her current position as Chief Secretary to the Treasury, uh, she has responsibility for overseeing UK public expenditure, including public sector pay and spending reviews, which I believe there's going to be one shortly. Is it November? Next summer. Next, next summer. As well as providing a, a purview on supply side issues, including childcare policy, labour market policy, welfare reform, and much more. Today, she will use her experience in government to reflect on what she believes should be the key components of a supply side agenda in both the US and the UK and how this can win the hearts and minds of young people in particular. Liz, welcome to Cato, and we look forward to listening to your thoughts on these timely topics. Well, thank you very much, Ryan, for inviting me over to Cato today. Uh, I received a born ultimatum and I had to come, and it's uh, been a great experience so far in Washington. 
In the early 18th century, two Englishmen, Trenchard and Gordon, wrote a book called Essays on Liberty, Civil and Religious. The other name for that book, as many of you will know, is Cato's Letters. And that's what the Cato Institute takes its name from. This book is one of the most important works on individual liberty. It made the case that individual freedom is the surest way to happiness and prosperity. But I believe in Britain and America, we need to learn that lesson again, because Anglo-American enterprise is under attack. And it's not just by people in distant places who seek to do us harm, but closer to home. I believe it's vital that we defend the values that have delivered social progress on prosperity, but also that we have confidence to reinvent them for a new generation, to create a modern Anglo-American dream. So why am I obsessed with freedom? Well, first of all, it's what motivated me to go into politics. I wasn't born in a conservative family. I've got two rather left-wing parents. Some of my early experiences were being dragged along on anti-nuclear rallies, objecting to the British-American military alliance in the 1980s. But by my late teens, I'd rebelled against this orthodoxy. I took the decision to think freely and to back freedom. And also, I fell in love with economics, and that's what made me a conservative. My parents could protest, and I could rebel against them, because we all live in a free country where we are able to speak our minds. It's not always easy, but being willing to challenge the status quo is what makes our nation successful, both for individuals and for society. You're in Britain and America, you can set up a business and you're able to make your own way in life. It doesn't matter where you come from or what your background is. And this harnessing of human ingenuity and individuality has been the key to our success. It's made the Anglo-American economic system the most successful in human history. It's been an engine of social and economic progress. I think it's unbelievable now that in the UK, words like business and profit are sometimes hurled around as insults, as if they imply a world of shady deals and fat cats. This is a complete subversion of what a free enterprise economy is about. To me, free enterprise is a hymn to individuality and non-conformity. It's what allows the young to flower and the anti-establishment to flourish. That's why our great countries are so good at producing revolutionaries, from Steve Jobs to Anita Roddick. And it's the reason why technologies like the smartphone, which have given the young more power to shape the world, come from free countries. Where the Wild West for ideas, where there's space for growth, and where pioneers push each other towards greater heights. No one knows their place, no one feels failure or fears failure, and no one is ashamed of success. And that's the way that countries and economies drive themselves forward. Some people claim that this is chaotic and it's unplanned. I say you're absolutely right, and that's nature's formula for change and improvement. The internet is a great recent example of this. It became the phenomenon it did because it's decentralised and democratised. It's allowed to evolve, adapt and improve. There's a culture of permissionless innovation. People don't wait for a certificate to explore their idea. They just launch a website or invent a new app. 
Now, of course, there was US-funded research that developed the technology. And of course, we need to make sure we play a role in tackling online crime and exploitation. But can you imagine what would have happened if government had interfered with the expansion of the internet? Whole industries wouldn't have been invented because the relevant committee hadn't given approval. Mail order goods would take months to arrive. The taxi app would be more expensive than the original. And Donald Trump's tweets would still be pending authorization. Heaven forbid. <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition Labour Party in Britain, has spent his life arguing that Anglo-American enterprise is the root of all evil. He peddles the fiction that inequality is being created by a cabal of international capitalists bent on world domination. But he's ignored the fact that his own standard of living and those of families across Britain is a product of the system that he wants to undermine. His answer is stamping out free enterprise and he wants to take power over economic decisions from people and put it in the hands of government. Just a few examples of the crazy ideas he's come up with. Nationalising major industries such as energy and rail, hiking tax on business, appropriating private property, increasing the size of the state to never before seen levels. And there's not an individual innovation that he doesn't want to counter or stifle. So we've got a mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, who's trying to ban innovative apps like Uber. We've got other Labour politicians trying to stop Airbnb. Jeremy Corbyn has talked about taxing commercial media to fund a government-run social media platform. And they're not just content with jacking up taxes on human beings. They want to put taxes on robots as well. Essentially, what their philosophy is, is banning success and shutting down the very freedom that gives ordinary people hope and prosperity. Now, there are some people who say the wind is blowing against us, that we've got a bunch of 20-something radicals who are plotting in Starbucks to overthrow capitalism. But that is not the young people that I meet. When I speak to younger people, I see people who want more freedom and not less. They show it in the way they live their lives, using the latest apps to go where they like, eat what they like, or work wherever and whenever they like. And the opinion polls show a generation who are focused and aspirational, who believe in lower taxes, who want to set up their own businesses. These people are the future of our countries, and we mustn't hold them back. But since the financial crash 10 years ago, we haven't been talking enough about giving these people the opportunities they want and need. I believe that Anglo-American capitalism has been on the back foot and not enough people have been articulating the case for economic liberty. Bankers took a lot of the blame for the financial crisis, and in some cases, rightly so. But regulators and governments who backed mortgages through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and set up failing regulatory systems also had a hand in what happened. Into this vacuum, we've seen extremists from every side of the argument telling us that everything's bad and who trade on trashing all that has made our countries great. We need to take on these doom mongers. It's time that we got our mojo back and stopped apologising for backing enterprise. We need to talk about freedom 
and aspiration and success. I know we can win this argument because we've won this argument before. In the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were blasted by the opposition. They were called evil and they were jeered in the streets, but they were unashamed of what they did and they were prepared to take criticism to do what was right. Britain groaned under the weight of nationalised industries, while in America, price and entry controls insulated incumbents from competition. But Thatcher and Reagan cut taxes and rolled out the frontiers of freedom. We then saw America enjoy its longest period of sustained growth in peacetime and the British economy boom. Thatcher and Reagan were rebels of their time, the radical prime minister and president who became parents of the enterprise revolution. And I believe that the success of Silicon Valley and Cambridge wouldn't have been possible without the work of Thatcher and Reagan to unleash the power of enterprise. But it's not enough just to defend our values. A question for our governments is how we push forward reform and how we harness the freedom to create success for a new generation. How do we create a modern Anglo-American dream? We remain two of the most prosperous countries in the world and our economies have grown robustly since the 1980s. We've got unemployment rates down to around 4%. Our industrial strategy in Britain will help strengthen Britain's skills and build the infrastructure we need to boost productivity. But I worry now that a thicket of regulation and control has developed, which is holding people back and which has become about managing risk rather than taking opportunities. As Nassim Taleb points out in his book, Anti-Fragile, these certainties are illusory. By clinging on to the past or seeking to straitjacket the future, we put ourselves at more risk. You create things that are too big to fail, whether that was the mining industry in the 70s and 80s or the super banks more recently. And when it goes wrong, it produces a political climate that many people call populism. I don't like that description because I don't denigrate people wanting to better themselves. In my view, it's right that people want the opportunity to have a good job, a great place to live, and to feel like they're succeeding and making a difference. But the reality is where we are now is that people are being told that free enterprises failed them and that the way to solve their problems is more government control, spending and regulation. I think this couldn't be more wrong. Our economies work best at full tilt when individuals and businesses are liberated. And we need to rediscover that economic dynamism that we all have deep within us. We need to make America and Britain the dynamic duo once more. And what does dynamism mean? Well, to me, it means embracing the new. Today, there are too many authorities in the US and UK that are embroiled in wars with the likes of Airbnb and Uber. There are media outlets all over the world desperate to shackle YouTube, which has done more to democratise media and the dissemination of information than many other organisations. And what we must remember is that while these new entrants often discomfort the incumbents, they have the potential to benefit everyone else. And it's the might of that popular demand that shapes economies. I believe that we need to allow places and people the flexibility to reinvent themselves from Cleveland, Ohio to Cleveland Teesside, 
whether that's the high street, whether it's industrial zones, or whether it's housing. And that means taking on the regulations that are stopping those changes happening. When President Trump came to power, he vowed to cancel every needless job-killing regulation. And of course, there is a place for well-designed, proportionate regulation that protects the public. I believe there should be a high bar for new regulations that constrain business. I think we're already seeing a positive effect here in the US of some of those regulatory reforms. So by the end of 2017, regulation was no longer cited as the top cost pressure for business for the first time in six years. And I've spoken to manufacturers who've seen more reasonable enforcement by the authorities here. And there are signs this is having a positive impact on small firms in terms of new investments. Because what it means for small companies, whether they're based in Norfolk, Virginia, or Norfolk in UK, where I represent, is that it's less time worrying about the fear of being inspected and more time thinking about the future of your business, taking on new employers, and how you can shape your future. Later on this week, I'm visiting Detroit and Ohio, and I'm going to visit the Common Sense Initiative, which is all about getting rid of some of those regulations that are stopping business succeeding. I think one very good example in recent years in the US is the attitude to fracking, where many states have opened up more land. And American energy costs are now some of the lowest in the world, which has spurred business on. Now, I've only been in Washington 24 hours, but a lot of people here have been talking to me about infrastructure. And one of our successes as a UK government is we've moved spending from current spending into capital expending, and we're now investing at the highest level in infrastructure than we have done for 40 years. But projects till, still take too long in the West, held back by clunky regulations. In China, they talk about China speed, how new roads rise from the ground in a blink of an eye. And we need to streamline our processes to compete. Republicans have made it a top goal to expedite infrastructure building, aiming to bring timelines down from 4.7 years to two years. And we need to follow the same path in Britain. We have had success in construction projects in the UK, but we still face barriers on projects that are vital to the strength of our economy. It's taken years to finally agree a third runway at Heathrow, which will turbocharge growth across the UK and ensure we remain one of the most open and free trading countries in the world. But for me, the biggest issue is housing. Today, cities in the UK like London, Edinburgh, Cambridge and York are bursting with potential. But our most productive cities are being held back by a Byzantine planning system, parts of which date back to just after the Second World War. That's why we're working to reform it. This system has meant that the share of working age people moving town for a new job has gone down by 25% since 2001, with the most significant decline amongst young graduates, which is terrible for our economy. Worse, Housing is taking up an ever-increasing share of our monthly incomes, leaving people feeling poorer. This is bad news for everyone. If you can't move to live near the best jobs, you can't get them. And it means many areas have people that are competing for a small number of existing jobs. America has a very similar problem. 
Since the 1980s, the proportion of Americans who move between states has halved. And it's those cities that are welcoming new people that are benefiting. So Cleveland, where I'm visiting later this week, was once a mecca for the automobile industry. It's got costs of living, which are up to 60% lower than those of Boston, Silicon Valley and New York. And that's one of the reasons it's attracting tech investment. I do believe that those cities that are open to new people moving in, that are open to new ideas, are the ones that are going to be successful in future. Individuals do best creating wealth and jobs for everyone when they're free. But keeping a handle on regulation is only one side of the coin. We also need to make sure that people have control of their own money as much as possible. And that's why we need to keep taxes low. Of course, the government needs to be there to provide services like schools to invest in infrastructure. But what we know is that every pound or dollar that we take in taxes is a pound or dollar that can't be invested in business or spent by a family on a new car or a holiday. And that's why I'm proud that governments on both sides of the Atlantic have cut taxes. We've reduced our corporation tax rate from 28% to 19%. And in the US, corporation tax has been cut from 35% to 21%. This means allowing businesses to invest more money, which means more jobs, higher wages, and better prospects for families. That's a record I'm proud of. Our societies are more open and less deferential than they've ever been. And we have a new generation who are more determined to get their own way than ever before. We have a fight on our hands to prove that our model is the one that gives them the best chance to shape the future and succeed. And I believe that successfully showing how this model works and delivering real gains in terms of prosperity will be vital to us winning the election in Britain in 2022. After Brexit, we have a huge opportunity to turbocharge freedom, to unshackle entrepreneurs, to build a more dynamic society and to shape a new relationship with America. To succeed, we have to trust in ourselves and our principles. We must make the modern Anglo-American dream happen for a new generation. Thank you. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, Liz. We've got plenty of time for um, questions from the audience. If you could uh, please wait to be called upon. And then I do believe that there is a microphone that should be doing the rounds uh, somewhere. Uh, yeah, here we go. Um, so please wait for the microphone. If you could just introduce yourself briefly and uh, and also highlight any affiliation and try to keep the uh, the questions short and try to keep them questions rather than statements. That would be ideal. Yes, the gentleman just there. Hi, my name is uh, Sid. Uh, I'm from UC Berkeley. I study economics and I share your love for the dismal science, but I worry that people sometimes conflate economic rationality with free market orthodoxy. For instance, the science says that cutting taxes during an economic boom is unadvised management of the business cycle, but free mar market orthodoxy would promote it for the sake of freedom anyways. I was wondering what you think should take precedence, economic rationality or free market orthodoxy? 
Shall we to answer one at a time? Or? Yeah, I'll go ahead. Yeah, we'll go for that one first. So <laughs> I think there is there's a constant debate about fiscal policy. I'm not a great believer in demand management. I think that has been a failed strategy in economic past policy in the past in the UK. And I think that when governments focus on the supply side and microeconomics, that's when we get the best effect. So one of the points I was making in my speech is we're still feeling the effects of the supply side revolution that we unleashed in the 1980s through those policies. So to me, the impact of tax on the individual and their incentives is the really important point and on companies in terms of the investment they keep. Now, we take the approach in the UK, and you saw this after the financial crisis, that monetary policy is the lead method in terms of responding to shocks in the system. So I would always favour using tax policy to make sure that we're keeping the burden down on individuals and enabling them to control their own money. It has to be said as well that you can avoid yeah, tax cuts being used for demand management purposes if you also simultaneously cut spending at the same time. Um, yes, the gentleman just behind. Uh, thank you for the interesting talk. My name is Robert Shara. I was um, retired now, but formerly worked for the International Monetary Fund for many years. Um, I have no problem. Thank you for the bailout. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's hope we don't have to do that again. But for those that uh, uh, before they were born or something, it, that finished in England with uh, the Chancellor of the Czech saying, calling it sod off day. <laughs> um, I have no problem agreeing with what you say in principle, but let me just throw a spanner into the works on the two sides of the Atlantic. Uh, on the US side, I think uh, uh, tax cuts are all very nice, and I do agree with the tax cuts to industry. But of course, although in principle, uh, Cato would believe in uh, lower taxes and smaller government, in this country it's not matched by that. It's just tax cuts with no cuts in expenditure. Mm. And we're now facing deficits in this country of a trillion dollars a year and a massive debt problem, which I think is going to be a huge problem for, for our children uh, when the so proverbial something or other hits the fan, as it must do eventually with this massive level of debt. Uh, and at the same time, these huge deficits mm. are going for mainly for Social Security and Medicare. In other words, these deficits, rather than being invested, are going for old people and sick people. Mm. And the amount of uh, government spending that's going towards uh, infrastructure, research, and all that kind of stuff has diminished mm. because that's the only stuff that's the easiest to uh, to cut. So I think the country is not going in the right direction in these things and is building up massive problems. On the UK side, I must admit that I don't follow it closely as I used to, but um, opinion polls show, and my own little anecdotal evidence shows, that young people are really pissed off uh, by mm. Brexit, and they see the mm. exit from Europe as massively decreasing their opportunities for all the things mm. that you uh, talked about for the future and with which I, I do agree. And I would recommend that there was an excellent podcast by Cato a few <laughs> weeks back on this US fiscal deficit, which I believe was done by your colleague there, which was very good. I'm sure it's great, yeah. Great. So on the subject of debt, in the UK this year, we will be in the position to start paying down debt as a proportion of GDP. So we have had rising debt and we've had a you know, difficult eight years reducing the deficit. I do think it's very important we keep debt under control. If you look at the situation in Japan, where there's been a significant debt over a period of time, I think debt is a drag on growth. 
but also if you have a very high level of debt you can't respond easily to a to a shock in the system so i agree with you in terms of reducing the level of debt and of course that fundamentally means tackling government spending which is the core of what my job is all about i think one of the big successes in britain has been our welfare reforms so we capped the level of welfare we've introduced universal credit and we've got a record number of people into work and reduced unemployment and that has reduced the level of entitlements i very much share your point about an aging population it does take tough political decisions so things like raising the retirement age uh, which we've done uh, but as the population continues to age we need to continue to to look at that because we can't have a situation where younger people are paying disproportionate levels of taxation uh, which which is difficult which leads me on to the second point you make about younger people i mean what what the opinion polls show about the next the, the next generation coming through is that the number one issues are things like housing and the cost of living and it really is about is your life going to be better than previous generations are you going to have the ability to shape your own destiny can you move to where the jobs are i think that is a much more real issue for people than you know the certainly the young people i speak to than necessarily brexit regardless of what side somebody has taken in in the referendum my view is that brexit is going to give us more freedom to have economic opportunities such as free trade deals with the rest of the world but it's not going to solve some of the fundamental problems in Britain, like the fact we haven't built as many houses as other European countries like France or Germany. The fact that it is incredibly expensive to live in London, that you're paying 50% of your income in rent. Those are, to me, the critical issues for us. And if we are to win over young people at the next election, those are the real issues we need to address. Okay, open it out to more questions. So the first hand I saw up was uh, Diego at the back, and perhaps we'll take uh, we'll, we'll take all three in one go, and then you can answer them in the round list. Hi, Diego Zuluaga from the Cato Institute and formerly of the Institute of Economic Affairs. Um, I was very encouraged by your endorsement of supply-side reform and your, the parallels you drew to the 1980s, but one of the notorious contrasts between that time and now is the absence, really, of an ideological leadership, I mean, you know, present company excluded, of course, on the part of the Conservative Party. Um, back then, the Conservative Party was really willing to tackle the vested interests and confront the trade unions and some of the really entrenched groups that had caused economic stagnation in the UK. And perhaps that is something missing today in the economic debate, where it seems that the left leads, and then the Conservative Party, to quote William F. Buckley, stands athwart history yelling stop. And so I'm curious uh, how, you would, how you would imagine taking your vision and persuading the rest of your colleagues, and, and mm. particularly one uh, colleague, the, the, the current leader of your party, that the right way to go about things mm. is to follow the blueprint from the 1980s and uh, not model yourself on what the opposition says, but in contrast to it. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we'll take the other two questions uh, from, the, from the back. Yeah, I, I'm curious, uh, in your ideal world, how you would see some of our giant corporations like Amazon or Google or Apple or Microsoft 
And then as I was thinking about that question, which I'd like to hear about, I really wonder if compared to the gross national product of, say, 1890, if they're really any bigger compared to that period than some of the big companies back in those days when the economy was one one hundredth of what it is now and the population was probably a quarter of what it is now. Mm. Okay, yep. Okay, let's take those those two, two okay. questions. So I don't I don't agree with this sort of despondency. I think we can change the political weather and if you look at the arguments that were developed into what became the supply-side reform of the 1980s, they were started in the 1970s. You know, Jeremy Corbyn and his nutty selection of policies, he's been banging on about them since 1981. You know, ideas are long lead. You know, they take time to persuade people, to bring people on board. And you, my view is you have to start now. <laughs> and they are the right ideas. But I wouldn't describe it as the 1980s blueprint. I think we're making a big mistake if we say we just repeat what we did in the 1980s. We're facing a different set of problems now. So, you know, one of the problems I talked about was housing and land use planning. That wasn't a big problem in the 1980s in, in the same way. You know, the problem there was heavily unionization, nationalized industries. And also, you know, we have issues with the makeup of the state. So we now have a much bigger proportion of state spending on things like health and welfare and social security benefits. So how are we going to deal with that? Uh, those are different challenges from the challenges of the 1980s. And I think we have to apply the time-honored principles that have existed since the Cato Institute was founded, not uh, just say we want to repeat the formula all I'm saying is that it's possible to win arguments and you win arguments through ideas and passion and making the case and bringing people on board. Uh, on the subject of these kind of mega corporations, I remember when people were saying IBM, you know, we're worried about them. They're a mega corporation. They're going to dominate the world. And then, then it's Microsoft, you know, Microsoft are controlling everything, you know, everybody's having to use Microsoft Word, and then it's Google, and then it's Facebook. And it does strike me that we've actually got quite a high turnover of these beer moths. And the best way, the best way of dealing with them isn't to regulate them, is to actually open up the market so the new version can emerge and take over. But you know, we're talking here about how do we bring young people on board with this agenda. And actually, they're huge beneficiaries of whether it's social media or the various you know, apps that can be used. So I think we've got to be careful not to demonize tech companies. Okay, so we'll, we'll take the, the other question from the back. I'm sorry to throw you off. I was just trying to expedite things with the <laughs> handler. Uh, my name is Madison Parks Prickett. My initials are MP. So I got mine at birth. <laughs> uh, I hang out with a lot of millennials. I, I think they're fun, they're hip, I like their music, I like a lot of things about them. They, they like to have fun, the ones I hang with. And uh, it, it amazes me at the way so many of these millennials, my daughter included, she's a first generation born in 82, how they embrace socialism. My daughter doesn't, but 
in any case. Uh, and and the, the best question I have found to open a, a debate with a millennial about socialism is, so you think government should run everything. How would you, how would you feel about turning your life over to our current government? I think I got that question from a uh, Cato publication or Reason or yeah. whatever, but it, it really hits a point. And then there's the other group who are making a frickin' fortune from capitalism, and then they, they, they're championing socialism while they're enjoying the fruits. So any advice in conversation with these guys, I, I have, I have, it's easier for me to have the conversations with uh, millennials who are not in my family, but otherwise, uh, it just, I can't understand it. it, it <laughs> Well, yeah, we I, have got a few, you know, good millennials in this room, so they can they can start to push the message out. So I just respond to that one. I think the point you make about fun is really important, and it's partly what I was alluding to when I said we've been on the back foot. You know, if we present it as, you know, navel gazing, we're not quite sure. That is not an attractive philosophy people want to be part of, and we're facing certainly in Britain, a Labour Party that is incredibly po-faced and humourless. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, his favourite activity is mi minding his allotment. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't want other people to have a good time. I mean, that, I talked about the robot tax and, you know, the tax, you know, he wants to close down social media so he can have a state-funded platform to, you know, push out more of his dismal messages. And I, I completely agree with you. That is not what millennials are interested in or excited about but we have to recognize the reason that a lot of people have turned to or had their head turned by this kind of socialist claptrap is because they want a shake-up you know they are annoyed that their house is so expensive and that it's difficult to move and you know the frustration about getting things done or enjoying themselves so I think tapping into that optimism, aspiration, fun, that is the way we will, we will transform those debates. There is a very a peculiar mindset amongst some conservatives on both sides of the Atlantic, it has to be said, whereby they talk about the need to attract millennials um, through economics on the one hand, but then advocate breaking up or taxing all of the companies that millennials uh, consume their products most often. Um, I know uh, in particular Amazon has come in for a lot of criticism from prominent conservatives here and some of that seems to be for political reasons but it's a peculiar paradox. Um, I mean I have I have said you know the the great thing about capitalism is regardless of what you enjoy whether you want to go to a a vaping shop or a vegan restaurant, you know, all of it is provided by capitalism. And those are, you know, we need to sort of get the sense across that the, the rich variety of modern life, the excitement and fun of everyday living is down to a system which has allowed people to express their individuality. And I think that is what is attractive about it, as opposed to, I mean, one of the things that Corbyn is proposing is £500 billion worth of tax taken off companies, which can then be in a central investment fund, so the government decides how the money is spent. I mean, who wants that? Just just on that 
point. Uh, the UK government has got a lot of criticism recently from free market groups over what is well, perceived... You, basically. Me <laughs> and, and Diego. Um, has come in for a lot of criticism from free market groups um, for some of the policies being uh, pursued surrounding public health. What do you see as the role of government in uh, saving us from ourselves? And perhaps on, on that note, uh, we'll take a question from Terence Keeley, who's, who's done a lot of work on this subject. Thank you, Ryan. Um, Terence Keeley from Cato. You've talked a lot, and rightly so, about millennial support of socialism. My children are of that generation, and they talk a lot about inequality. What, I don't know the answer, what, 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 what is your comment uh, about our side of the debate when it comes to inequality? Do you mind me, Ryan, talking, talking about that rather than the question you wanted me to ask? <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll answer your question as well, Ryan. But the on 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 inequality. I mean, let's look at the facts here. Almost all of the wealth inequality that Thomas Piketty pointed to to in his book, the growth in wealth inequality, is down to changes in housing wealth. So, a lot of the problems of inequality that we see arising. Are, are as a result of things like over-restrictive planning regulations that have driven up prices. So I know it's, it's so often hard to link the cause and effect, but I think we need to be clearer about that. We need to show how those types of inequality have emerged. So they haven't emerged because of rapacious capitalists. They've emerged because of a system that we've had that's restricted the building of houses. We're now reforming that and fixing that. But that is why it is so difficult to get on the housing ladder. And that's the way we need to talk about the arguments. We need to talk about those underlying principles. Um, you know, likewise, there are other areas, for example, utilities, where I think the, the way that we regulate them should be changed and sh shaken up so you can have a single economic regulator rather than having individual companies that sometimes have captured the regulator. So we need to explain what the underlying problems are and how those those have arisen. And also, it, as I've said, capitalism is the greatest, you know, the greatest engine of social progress. It, the reason why uh, we're seeing more people richer in the world than ever before is because so many countries have adopted adopted that system. And I do think it's ironic that in America and Britain, which were the pioneers of Anglo-American capitalism, that we're questioning ourselves when you, know, you look at Asia and the rising country of Asia, who you know desperate to tap into what we've got. Um, yeah, I, just, I just, just link that to your question about public health. Yeah, just on that inequality point quickly. One of the peculiar phenomena in the in the UK is that actually income inequality um, has actually fallen since the financial crisis and actually fell uh, just after the financial crisis. And, uh, you know, very few people were celebrating that fall in inequality because it was mainly due to the fact that everybody was getting relatively poorer, but the rich were getting poorer at a faster rate than the poor were getting poorer. Um, I do think there's a genuine, there is a genuine issue there. And that this is why I talk about mobility and the ability to move places, to move jobs, that 
that there is a sense in which people can feel trapped and we have to recognize that and we have to look at what can we do to liberate people from that feeling otherwise you know so i think it is true that young people can feel trapped and we need to address that otherwise we will end up with labor just saying the simple solution is to tax everybody redistribute wealth and what about my question about so, all the nannies in your party <laughs> the i mean my my view is fundamentally and this is why i mentioned schools in my speech the government absolutely has a role in making sure that everybody can participate fully in society that we have well-educated people and that we help those who can't manage to live an independent life but all our focus as a government should be getting people to the stage where they are able to do that so that's why our welfare changes are so important because they're actually getting people up to the you know the level you've got job center coaches who are coming in there and helping people get into work we've got schools that are improving basic education and that is the main way in which we're going to deal with problems like obesity. You know, when people get better off, they have you know, more opportunities to live a healthy lifestyle, in fact, and, and the, the evidence shows that. Okay, we've still got time for some more questions. Yes, the lady right at the back. Thank you very much. Alex Hall from the Atlantic Council. Um, I just wondered if you would mind uh, giving us a little bit more of an update on where um, the UK is with the Brexit negotiations. <laughs> I'm sorry, I know we've skirted around it. Um, what your own assessment is of the chances uh, of success. And if Chequers does become the basis for a deal with the EU, to what extent does that constrain us in forming a new trade relationship with the US? And where do you see the opportunities with the US? Thank you. Well, if you if you want wall to wall coverage of uh, Brexit, you can tune into the British media, which uh, has endless focuses on you know, the various arguments. I mean, my view is that we're going through a period there will be a lot of discussion, argument, posturing. You know, there is a negotiation going on, and there is a reason why the EU is saying what they're saying, and there's a reason why my colleagues in the parliamentary party are saying what they're saying. When push comes to shove, I do believe we will get a deal. And I do believe that it will get the support of Parliament. I think what Theresa May has laid out is a deal which is capable of negotiability with the European Union whilst commanding the support of parliamentary colleagues. And whilst we must prepare for no deal, and I'm not afraid of no deal, I don't think it is the most likely outcome. I think a deal is the most likely outcome with a transition period. And then we will be able to have those things like the free trade agreement uh, with the US. That will be absolutely possible. What sort of appetite from the conversations that you've had? And I know this is not your your um, area. I'm not negotiating government. Brexit, by the way. I want you to know that. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of appetite have you seen through some of your conversations with both business people and politicians here for a future uh, free trade agreement between the US and the UK? I think there are huge, there's huge potential. It's one of the biggest potential benefits of Brexit is the possibility of that trade arrangement. And uh, I, I think it, it's great. And by the way, I've also recently been in places like Brazil and Chile. They're also very interested 
in a deal with the UK. I think there's a lot of opportunity in East Asia as well. So, but the US is probably the biggest opportunity of the lot. And I, I see an appetite for it here. Yes, we'll take another question from here. I uh, sit again. Uh, I think I'm ironically the only millennial to ask a question at an event about it's selling disgraceful. economics to millennials. I brought some millennials from the treasury with me, by the way. They're all. So maybe they can get a question afterwards. Um, I think I speak for a lot of millennials when I say a big issue for us in the United States is student debt. Mm. Um, and I was wondering if you have any insights from your economic management in the UK or from your economic ideology. Um, on what's the best way to run a higher education system. <laughs> so the UK currently, we've currently got a review ongoing to look at this specific issue. I mean, my, my view is the system we've got at the moment in the UK of tuition fees is the right type of approach. I think there are changes we could make, it, make to it. But fundamentally, the cost is shared between the government and the student. And that's right because... In the UK, if you do a degree, you're likely to earn £200,000 more over the course of your career than if you don't do a degree. Um, and we have a student loan system which, which deals with that. I think there are problems with our system. So, for example, uh, we, you know, there are some courses that have a greater economic output than others. Uh, you know, should the government be subsidising courses where the students who leave the university are actually likely to be on lower salaries than if they hadn't gone to the university in the first place? There are courses like that. You could, this is all open data in Britain. You can look on the Leo database and see uh, where those courses and where those universities are. So I think the principle of the system is right. We're looking at how to adjust it. I probably don't know enough about the American system um, I have to declare a slight interest. My dad's an academic, and his main interest is he wants to work more days every year. So he thinks university terms should be longer, and I agree with him on that. There is an interesting uh, experiment, I think, going on, or at least a new means of financing at Purdue University, where uh, they're moving from a kind of debt-based system to almost an equity-based system, whereby mm. um, uh, your fees are paid up front, but then you pay back the university a proportion of your income over a given number of years. So I think it was actually recommended by that system by uh, Milton Friedman. It seems to be another idea of his that could gain traction in the years to come. Yeah, we'll take another question from, from Terence at the back. Perhaps I could just make a comment on that very interesting question. The two countries with the best systems of universities in the world are unquestionably the United States of America and Great Britain. They are markedly better than any other countries. I mean, to a degree that's really astonishing. They're one or two other countries like Australia and Canada that don't do badly. But when you look at the French or the German or the Italian universities, they're truly terrible. It, it's just the case, you know, um, it just is the case. The French have invented Grand École as a way of trying to get out of their own universities. The point is, the success of America and Britain is absolutely attributed to the free market. They are brilliant universities because the customer pays. And, of course, I'm sorry that they complain, but, you know, the choice is, do you want to pay and get a great university education, or do you want a socialist system and get a rubbish education system? Mm. And the reality is, you don't get 
what you don't pay for. And I think we should be proud of our universities. I was very, very struck two months ago when I was back in, in the UK, about three months ago, when the very first time in history that the international league tables put a British university first, that was Oxford, beating Harvard, Yale, and other follow runner-up universities. That very same week, an explosion of criticism emerged in Britain, blaming the vice chancellors for the disgraceful salaries they earned. Many of them earned really quite good money. And this was a disgrace mm. because they had so improved their universities <laughs> that it was outrageous they should be paid what the labor is worth. We really do have a socialist ingrained culture in higher education that I think, well, I think we should attack it a bit more. And, and there's a broader question there. What, what do you see or what do you say to those who seem to have now a much more active interest than perhaps 10 years ago in how much people are paid in, in industries. We see it with CEOs, and that's uh, with Jeremy Corbyn and, and John McDonald's musings. That's now filtering out into other industries too. And it has to be said, it's part a big part of the debate here as well. So what do you say to those who talk about excessive pay in, in certain industries? So on, on Terence's point about universities... I, I hugely agree with you. I mean, I think I was talking to Herman Hauser, one of the technology guys out of Cambridge, and he, I was saying, why is Cambridge so successful? And he said, we built a university a thousand years ago. And I think we need to, you know, these are incredibly long lead time institutions, uh, essentially. And one of the things that I like about the American universities is the way that endowments are used and built up and used to do things like fund tech startups. And, you know, both in the UK, we don't, not enough pension funds. I mean, I think it's to do with things like pension regulations go into high risk ventures, but also you don't have the university culture as much. I mean, we're seeing a change in that with Cambridge and the, the sort of spin outs out of Cambridge. But I think there's a huge way to go in terms of those those universities building and using endowments uh, in a in a positive way and we're now finding that right across britain so i was at teesside recently because that university had had a brilliant computer science course in the 1980s it's now spawned a lot of games industry in the area so there are all these unforeseen consequences of universities that are now really driving economic growth they're becoming the new version of a river you know, cities had to be by a river to be successful. Now, universities are a part of that. On pay, I mean, one of my jobs as chief secretary is signing off public sector pay. And I think civil servants are, you know, there is a sort of good system for managing civil service pay. One of the problems we've got is things that are in what I describe as the twilight zone between the public and private sector. So I'm all for people who take a risk, who have skin in the game, being rewarded for that risk taking. But if it's the case that somebody is essentially a bureaucrat operating in a quasi private sector job, but they're not actually taking a risk and there is a lot of funding coming from the government, I think that's a slightly different case. So by all means in a, you know, out, out in the full market, you know, yes, shareholders, and it's interesting that shareholders have had more rebellions on some executive pay where they think the executives don't deserve it. I think that's a proper mechanism that should be exercised through shareholders. But certainly in the case of 
sort of public sector and quangates, I think we've got to be careful not to just say there's a market out there because somebody's being paid X in the private sector. In my view, the risk has to go with the reward. Great. Well, I think that's just about all we've got time for. Directly following this, there is a reception which will be held in the on the second floor. So you've got to go up a, a couple of uh, staircases to get there in uh, the conference centre where you can grab some uh, food and refreshment. Uh, Liz, thank you so much for, for coming to spend time with us today. Pleasure.